the WERU Community Advisory Board will meet at the Alamo Theater on Main Street in Bucksport. The purpose of the Community Advisory Board is to provide a forum for effective community input to the station's board of directors about station programming, community service, and impact on the community. This meeting is open to the public. For more information, please email matt at weru.org or call 469-6600 during weekday business hours and ask for WERU's general manager, Matt Murphy. Listeners can email feedback to WERU at any time at info at weru.org. Support for WERU comes from the Abbey Museum, Maine's first Smithsonian affiliate, founded in 1928 at Sir de Mon Spring in Acadia National Park, and open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. It's just a few seconds before 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host, Donna Loring, is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we will make a historic announcement uh, on the show, reference the Peter Francis case. But first, uh, I want to play part of uh, an interview I had with uh, Colin Woodard, who's an award-winning journalist and uh, an author. Uh, and this interview took place back uh, in October of last year. That show detailed the case very well. And then I will introduce a very special guest and make the announcement. Uh, here is last year's interview with Colin Woodard. Let's, uh, let's talk about the series. I must say that I read uh, all of those 29 sections in the paper. Um, and was very intrigued by the information that came out, some that I didn't know myself. Uh, but my first question to you, Colin, is um, what, what made you decide to do this series on the Passamaquoddy? Well, originally it was because it, 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 we weren't thinking of doing a, a series of this scale. In fact, I don't think the newspaper has ever done a series this large um, and originally, uh, I had been receiving from various sources, many of whom seemed to be unconnected over a period of months, concerns about the present-day situation uh, uh, for the Passamaquoddy internally. Um, and essentially, it was a, uh, concerns about a lack of rule of law uh, within the tribe here and now. And in, it, there were so many inquiries, and it was, you know, I, I recognize how difficult it is for people within the tribes to be reaching out and sort of airing dirty laundry to the outside world, given the history of everything that happened. So I knew that people had to be really concerned to be reaching out to us. At the, yeah. At the now, Colin, when you, when you say people, uh, are you talking about uh, members of the tribe? Yes, tribal members, yeah. And in all of these cases, the, the, the concerns were coming from within the tribe. Um, otherwise, I, I wouldn't have... Uh, of uh, venture to, to do any of this, but there were so many different uh, concerns being expressed over time, I realized that it must be fairly significant for the for people to be coming forward. And so I started exploring it and talking with people and researching, and uh, quickly it became clear that some of the reasons that there was no constitution for the tribe and some of the things that were leading to the um, rule of law problems that were being experienced had to do with the land claim settlement back in 1980, and in exploring that, you know, how did how did that come to be and come to be uh, come together the way it did? I kept digging further and further back until I found myself in the mid 1960s in a Maine that, although I was born and raised here and I'm sort of a historian of Maine, I guess I found absolutely um, shocking and horrifying, and I realized most Mainers would and. Um, that world in the 50 years ago, in, say, 1964, in eastern Washington County, resembled um, greatly um, the situations that were happening in the Deep South at the time. 
and I don't think Mainers usually, you know, with the, the mainstream Mainers do not think of ourselves quite in that same light. That's right. They don't equate themselves with uh, Alabama and, and those kind of uh, exactly. States. And the equi- I mean, there were you know, people were tribal people would be killed, and nobody would really seriously investigate it. And um, members of the Indian tribes couldn't vote, and all of these other things, which um, tribal members, I think, then and now are acutely aware of, but um, some of which have been forgotten or were never known by, you know, the rest of us in the state. And when I started running into things like the slaying of Peter Francis by five white hunters and the miscarriage of justice and prosecution that followed, and then the elimination of their the, the attorney who had teamed up with the tribal leadership to successfully challenge some of these injustices, and had you know, he had just filed a the first land claim suit against the state of Maine for a $150 million trust fund that had been looted by the state without explanation and thousands of acres of land that had been taken. And the moment he served that suit, uh, he was driving home to his office in Eastport and found himself in the middle of an elaborate setup and sting operation orchestrated by the attorney general's office. And all of those things, you know, the, the combination of those things were so significant and shocking that when I brought them back to my editors and said, you know, look, this is, this reshapes the way we think not only about the state um, and Maine's relationship with the tribes and the, 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 the background and backstory to that, but it says a lot. And it's a, it's a reflection on Maine itself and who we are as a people that these things happen and have been sort of forgotten. And it's important that people understand it all. Because we're a small state, and some of these, uh, some of the things that happen there have implications for today, and certainly for the tribes and for the relationship with the state and the legislature, and uh, and so on and so forth. So it became a larger project, and it was actually my editors who uh, had the idea that we should make it into a series, make it you know whatever scale really needs to be had to really tell the story, and that ended up being a very large scale that newspapers don't usually do. A total of 48,000 words, uh, 29, actually 31 story parts running over uh, 29 straight days in the in the paper. Yeah, and I have to hand it to the uh, Portland Press for, uh, for actually putting that information out there, even though it wasn't so uh, nice for, uh, for the state. Uh, but, I, you know, I guess you, I, you could also say it wasn't nice for the tribe either. Uh, but I, I do, I'm wondering... When you were hearing these um, things about the the the, the internal ruling uh, happenings going on inside the tribe, and and tribal members, were they just talking to other reporters at the paper, and then you got the assignment, or were they specifically talking to you? They were specifically reaching out to me, and as to why I was chosen, I can only sort of guess, but. The previous year, um, I had done a fairly substantial story on the uh, controversy over the uh, allowing alewives to return to their native ground, okay. the St. Croix River. Yep. Um, and I think, I suspect it's, um, I may have earned some credibility within the tribe for the way we covered that and the, and the detail we went into. And so I can only guess that maybe that had something to do with, you know, when they were looking for a reporter to bring this to that they they came in my direction i mean i'm I'm very appreciative for their confidence whatever reason it was but that's my best guess as to why i might have been on the radar screen yeah you know i also was wondering you know before you took on this assignment uh what uh what you know prior to what were your thoughts about uh the native people of maine the tribes well i didn't know a great deal. I grew up in western Maine in North Franklin County, a strong Kingfield uh, Phillips, which is, of course, quite far away from the reservations, and there's very few Native people there. I mean, one of my close friends happened to have been a Mi'kmaq tribal member, but I think, as far as I know, he was the only sort of, you know, person recognized tribal member in my school or even in my high school. Um, so my direct contact growing up wasn't all that large, and like Mainers everywhere, and my teenage years, the land claim settlement had happened, and I remember it, you know, being in the news and such, but it didn't directly affect Western Maine either. So, 
I guess like a lot of people in the southern and western part of the states, we didn't have a lot of direct experience because it was far away and seemed intriguing and interesting, but not something that we knew a great deal about. So after your your research and your, I'm sure you interviewed uh, tribal members on this and actually went to the uh, to the communities. Um, after doing this, how did your perception change? Um. How did my perception change? I guess, I mean, I certainly learned a great deal more about tribes and the internal dynamics, both of the tribes and their relationship between the reservations of the Passamaquoddy and the relationship with the state. And I think, for me, the most significant and surprising thing was just how profound and brutal and atrocious the racism was say, 50 years ago, which is where the series starts, um, was far beyond what I would have guessed or known, even growing up in Maine and having written, you know, histories of Maine. And I I knew a fair bit about the colonial history uh, of the tribes and their relationship, and, you know, the early contact period when the first European explorers were coming through, and, um, and some of the colonial era stuff I knew a lot about, but not the more recent stuff and the fact that you know, the things could be as stark and and frightening as they were was a real eye-opener for me. Right. And I think that was the most significant thing is real, you know, that, that you know, in 1965 or 66, that uh, tribal members at Indian Township couldn't get their hair cut in Princeton on racial grounds. And that, as, you know, even into the 1990s and beyond, um, Passamaquoddy, you know, family would sit down at a restaurant and not be served. I mean... Those things, to me, were quite shocking. And, and I, I guess what was most shocking is that for the people who were telling me these stories just in passing, um, they were so surprised that I found it surprising. And, and that showed the, I guess, the gulf and differences of experience and perception between you know, those of us in, in wider Maine, especially outside of Washington County, and people who live these things every day or lived through those events back in the 1960s. Yeah, and you started your actual series with uh, the Peter Francis case. So- yes, yeah, that happens very quickly. It actually starts with the, there's a, a protest um, against the stealing of a parcel of land by a white landowner at Indian Township uh, in May 1964, so 50 years ago. And at that protest, uh, you know, ultimately four Indian women were arrested and taken to jail. And as a result of that, um, tribal leaders, including George Francis, who was then the chief at uh, Pleasant Point, went seeking an attorney. And the opening of the book is this first encounter uh, between George Francis, who's, I think, 71 at the time. Uh, He had, uh, because there were so few job prospects when he came home from war uh, in eastern Washington County. He had ended up spending a big chunk of his life working for Ford Motor Company in Michigan, and then he'd come back to the reservation and been so appalled at the conditions and and uh, what the state was doing and the way the Indian agents were despotically treating people that he had, um, had become elected chief and was aggressively confronting state officials and federal officials in a way that nobody had in living memory. And he went and found himself, you know, no attorney would really represent him. He was trying to find an attorney. And the opening of the series is this meeting in May 1964 between George Francis and uh, this young 27-year-old attorney who had just moved to Eastport from New York City named Don Jellers, who was um, extremely idealistic and entirely naive and unaware that representing the tribe to get him in trouble. He didn't even know before that meeting that there were tribes there. He'd been so busy setting up this law office. So it opens with that meeting because it's that moment, that alliance between George Francis and Don Jellers that uh, starts pushing over the dominoes because together they start successfully challenging um, many of the injustices, small and large, and Don Jellers starts preparing the first land claims case. And it's Jellers, and, and then the Peter Francis um, 
slaying happens, uh, and that becomes Don Teller's reason it, it, it actually uh, became not only statewide but national news is because Jellers called in the press, and it that in a sequence of events um, start knocking over the dominoes that lead us to what the 1980 land claim settlement and, and today. So it's sort of that the real strong resistance began at that moment and unfolded from there. Now, what about this Peter Francis case that stands out in your mind uh, that made the, the uh, I guess, the strongest impression on, on your view? It was, it, in an, it is a, in a nutshell, an in extremist, the um, encapsulates all of the um, sort of horror and stark lack of legal protection and rule of law that um, tribal people in eastern Washington County were experiencing at the time. I mean, lots of things had happened, but this case was so stark and horrible. Five white hunters show up uh, looking for young girls to uh, get involved with and are propositioning them, and uh, they come to George Francis's house to try to do this, and eventually George's younger brother, Peter, who's visiting, who's in his uh, mid-50s, who's, who's visiting from Connecticut, where he has a job at the, at the naval shipyard, he and a, and a neighbor, uh, Christy Altvater, try to sort of deflect these hunters who are drunk and boisterous and obnoxious and trying to pick up 14-year-old girls and stuff. They tried to deflect them into, you know, sitting down and, you know, having dinner and get them on their way. And uh, it ends with the five hunters. There's an altercation, and uh, because the hunters have actually had a, a girl in their car, and in the altercation, uh, Christy Altvater is beaten senseless, and Peter Francis is killed by a violent blows to the back of his head with a nail-studded two-by-four. Horrible, horrible situation. The hunters jump in the car and take off. And ultimately, none of them are charged for beating uh, Christy Altvater. And one, all, and the murder indictments are drawn up by the county attorney, but never served. And instead, they served a manslaughter charge to one of them. And uh, Don Gellers, who was their attorney, kind of blew the whistle in the press, started paying attention and despite that, it became statewide news. It appeared that the prosecutors were um, perhaps dropping the case or, or intentionally losing the case, and all the hunters end up going free. And it, it, it's like it was, it's a case where it was absolutely horrific. The state um, seemed to be um, failing to seriously prosecute or even trying to throw the case. It had, and despite the previous cases, it actually had, not only statewide attention with being on page one of the newspapers of the state, but it, 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 the acquittal made uh, Walter Cronkite in the CBS News, which at the time was the absolute dominant newscast in the entire country. So despite all that attention, it would seem that this would have been the one exception where justice would have to be served because everybody was watching. It wasn't. And, and that just showed how absolutely stark um, the... Uh, the miscarriage of justice really was because the case is so horrific. It's, it's very hard to read. It was very hard to report. Um, and yet still, you know, justice was not served clearly because the, it was in, you know, the victim was an Indian and it sort of crystallizes everything. I think, and I think it crystallized things from, for many in the tribe too, that, um, you know, Enough really is enough. This can't go on. And remember, this was happening in 1965, and the case was in 66. The civil rights movement in the South is starting to happen. It won't be long until the American Indian movement really takes hold. There's change, and the possibility of resisting the state authorities is probably there for the first time, you know, where you actually might succeed in doing so. And my guess is that George Francis, having lived in Michigan as long as he did, sort of saw that perspective. And Don Jellers, you know, you know totally, um, but you probably underestimated the dangers that he and the tribe might have been getting into, but he was ready to go, you know, all the way for justice. And so that was just one of those seismic events that really crystallizes um, how unacceptable and terrible the status quo was at that time. Yeah, and what really strikes me about this is um, there were some newspaper articles that were written at that time and they describe how um, after the verdict was handed down, 
the innocent verdict for Ellingwood? Right, for, for manslaughter. Yep. How the uh, people of the town uh, clapped and, and uh, were just ecstatic that he was uh, found not guilty. Cheering, yes. Yeah. And the accounts uh, from the family members who were there, including Peter Francis's uh, uh, sister and wife, were that they were actually being, you know, cheered and, um, you know, sort of almost teased by the audience and even the accused in the courtroom. So it gives you a sense of a, uh, a very disturbing atmosphere um, that, again, for, for most of us in Maine, is, is not the way we think of Maine, and it really... Um, puts forward a, a dark mirror for us to understand where we really came from and where the relationship with the tribes has come from because of all of those things. Yeah, and I remember there was a statement in uh, one of the, in one of the paper, newspaper articles from uh, Deanna Francis, who is now passed, um, and and she was very uh, upset that they didn't the the uh, the prosecutor didn't ask her. Uh, about her being propositioned and offered money by these hunters. And the, and the tribal uh, members who are witnesses felt that uh, they were not asked the questions that they were asked in the grand jury uh, proceeding. Yes, that's correct. There, and the, the most logical um, takeaway you can come with from what wasn't asked, and the grand jury testimony, which had been lost, was found while I was working on the series. Um, and so we were able to see what everyone was asked, the full transcript uh, surfaced. And it's very clear that um, it seems like either it was an intentional throwing of the case or some incompetence of staggering proportion with the prosecutor. Um, the most likely seems to be the former was going on. Yeah, and there was, uh, you know, reading the article about uh, Michael Corey, Michael Corey Hinton, and how this has really uh, traumatized his family for generations. Um, in in your uh, in your write up, in your the section about that, um, you yes, say. Yes, I mean they've been struggling for generations since then, right? To 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 find justice for Peter Francis, who is um, uh, Corey's. Uh, Corey is his. Um, great-grandson. And uh, his father, uh, Randy Hinton, has also spent his life um, trying to address this. And, you know, for much of the time, nobody was listening. And, um, yeah, the, the, the trauma, of course, of those events that are passed down to, to both of the families uh, who, were, who uh, were, were touched by that incident with the hunters. And that's one of the things I think as an outsider that was, um, uh, I don't know, most... That really hit you, hit me emotionally, is that so many people have these kinds of experiences and trauma that have been handed down in families. So many awful things have happened, people being killed and so on and so forth. And it, it just touches everybody. The kind of stories that just, you know, make your jaw drop are seem very, very commonplace and almost are mentioned in a, in a, a passing everyday way like, these are things that happen to everybody because it does seem like it's happened to almost every family. And it really gives you a sense of just the, the price that had been paid, again, in that era because there was no law, in a sense, for tribal members. You know, they could be killed with impunity. They weren't, they weren't safe and protected. There was that vacuum. Um, and, and the price of that in real human terms is um, you know, the, the Peter Francis story um, in its tragic way shows and illustrates so well. But there are all sorts of stories, large and small, like that out there that are similar that have touched so many people in the among the past Maquati. Yeah, and yet when you say so many stories like that out there, you're talking about within the, the tribal communities. Yes, exactly. Within the past Maquati, I don't know as much about the Penobscot Nation, unfortunately, but I, you mm -hmm. know, in the past Maquati community, absolutely. And um, you'd be able to educate people better from the Penobscot um, point of view. But Yes, it seems um, just harrowing um, how many people have experienced these sorts of things and other traumas. And you know, there were there were you know, teachers and priests who the schools who were abusing kids for generations, and you know, it just goes on and on again because people weren't 
weren't protected. You know, they, they didn't have their own um, sovereignty or allowed to, you know, police or have powers themselves, and nobody else was doing it. And so they were extremely vulnerable in that era, and that's part of the thing that, that George Francis was, you know, leading the, the effort to stop. Right. Yeah, I mean, they had no voice. Yeah, no voice, voice and no, you know, when you when you called the police, they might not show up or the yeah. ambulance. And then that was the other piece of this case. You know, the, yep. fa- the fact that they had called the sheriff, the state police, uh, the ambulance, and uh, nobody wanted to show up. Yeah, nobody wanted to show up. And I can't remember some incredible amount of time for the ambulance to get there from Eastport, like, you know, an hour delay. And this mm-hmm. is, in, you know, the early evening on a Wednesday night. And yeah, just that level of, um, I don't know, callousness or what it is, but um, it is amazing to contemplate today. Yeah, and uh, I, if you don't mind, I want to read something from your article here sure. uh, where you say, Christy Elfvader was never the same after the beating. Family members say he hanged himself in his basement in 1971. For the rest of his life, Kirk Elfvader, Christy's son, suffered from panic attacks that would leave him doubled over, hyperventilating. He developed a stutter, and his hands would shake. He killed himself in 1979. He was 21. And he had witnessed the, 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 the beating um, uh, firsthand, and then had, been, uh, had to testify, I guess, on his ninth birthday or something, at the trial. And according to family members, well, testifying, he was sort of being humiliated and mocked for any, you know, lapses in English syntax, which wasn't really his, you know, wasn't his first language and things like that, which didn't help any either. Yeah. And you go on to say, there's been no justice. This is what Corey says. There's been no justice and irreparable harm has been done to my family. Uh, uh, Says uh, Peter Francis, 27-year-old great-grandson, Michael Corey Francis, Hinton, uh, an Indian law attorney, uh, at Aiken Gump, one of the country's most prominent law firms. The damage is done, and it's still affecting people, generations of my family, the Altvaders and others in the community. This is the fire that burns within me, he says, adding that his great-grandfather's slaying in its aftermath influenced his career choice. And then he says, there will be justice done. So Corey, from what I understand, is seeking that justice. Yes, and they, they have been for some time, and they're they're they are still doing so. I mean, the the hope would be that um, prosecutors, presumably federal prosecutors of the Department of Justice, would um, be able to look into the case and um, be able to reopen it. Um, so far, that hasn't happened, and you know there there are of course all kinds of difficulties, even with the most well-intentioned prosecution because, first of all, time has passed. Uh, Four of the hunters are are still alive. And uh, somebody did a very good job of purging the court files of many of the documents that should be there. The the file was nearly empty. It seems that a a lot of stuff in this most high-profile case of the entire era in Washington County's courts Somehow, a lot of the uh, basic materials didn't make it out of Washington County. So that, um, well, further injustice also makes it very hard to um, operationalize a case. But um, the, the hope is that somehow that can happen. Yeah, and and you did make your point that uh, this case was really well, very well publicized and, and watched by almost the whole country. Um, yes, I mean... At, it made national attention, and it was on the front page of the, uh, the Press Herald sent a um, reporter up there, and there was a huge front page Sunday story um, after the slaying, and, and then they covered the trial very, very closely, and the Bangor paper did as well. And yeah, at the time, it was a it was a pretty big deal, and there were editorials, call, you know, essentially saying that there was a the prosecution was doing a you know a terrible job, and there were serious questions about the case, and yet, you know. Still, you know, nobody was justice was not served. Nobody was charged for the for the. For okay, uh, that was the uh, part of part of the uh, conversation that we had uh, with uh, 
with Colin Woodward uh, about the Peter Francis case. Um, I now have a uh, very special guest uh, on the line, uh, Michael Corey Hinton, the great-grandson of Peter Francis. Uh, Corey, are you there? Hi, Don. I'm here. Okay. I don't know if you uh, had a chance to listen to what we were saying, uh, but uh, even if you haven't, that's fine. Um, you, uh, you attended, it was uh, on Saturday, November 14th, 2015, there was a ceremony that was held at Pleasant Point, and uh, the ceremony was to remember uh, this horrific incident, and uh, you attended that ceremony, and uh, you basically talked to the uh, to the group that had gathered there, and uh, you said that uh, you're still seeking justice for the family and for the community, and you said that in no uncertain terms. Uh, what uh, what are you doing right now uh, f to reach that goal? Thanks, Donna, uh, and I, I want to first uh, begin by saying that I was listening, and um, and that. Uh, on behalf of my family, I I, I owe you um, a great debt of gratitude for for your support and and for helping us in this fight. And that is an ongoing fight. Um, and it it proceeds on a couple of different fronts. the The event on Saturday was was uh, it was critical to first and foremost to the healing process. Traditionally, in our community. When, when there's a loss of a loved one, um, one year after that loss, there is typically uh, a traditional meal and prayers. And as a part of that ceremony, the community embraces the family. And, and the, the family moves from the period of mourning, which lasts for a year, into uh, a period of remembrance. And, and embrace in, by the community, at which point that, that pain that they've been holding in is, is, is transferred and is held. And, and, and at that point, it's no longer the burden of the family to carry that by themselves. Well, after November 14, 1965, the trauma of what occurred uh, prevented that from ever taking place. And so my family carried that burden, and the Altfader family carried that burden. And the event this past Saturday was, uh, amazingly, um, an event that should have taken place 49 years before. Um, and so the event was important for, for myself and for members of my family to, to be a part of that communal healing process and to, and to feel the support of our fellow tribal members. Um, but it was also important to let those community members know, those community members who, who stepped up to the plate to support my family, um, to let them know that the fight for justice is going on. And so to that end, there are a couple of efforts that, um, that are proceeding, and these efforts do revolve around reliance on the criminal justice system as a uh, mechanism to bring accountability and justice where, uh, where Washington County and the state of Maine failed to do so in 1965. Yeah, and, uh, and Corey, um, I also have uh, Chief Kirk Francis and uh, Penobscot Nation Police Chief uh, Bob Bryant on the other line, and uh, I'd like to uh, bring them in at this point. To uh, and uh, Chief Francis is and uh, in, in leadership uh, at the at the federal level of the United South and Eastern Tribe uh, uh, organization, and uh, they've uh, been doing some things uh, in reference to this case and. Uh, uh, Chief Francis, if uh, if you're there, uh, <laughs> I'm sure you are. Uh, could you address uh, that what uh, USET has 
has done. Sure. Good morning, Donna. Good morning, Corey. And I, uh, uh, thanks for having us on. And um, so, yeah, through the United South and Eastern Tribes, uh, you know, amazingly, growing up here, um, I heard very little about about this case. Um, and, you know, kind of the first time that I um, saw any detail on, on what had happened was um, through Corey and through his presentation at, uh, you said, at the Criminal Justice uh, Committee. And, you know, they had a short documentary and, and laid out the case history in a, in a very good way, I think. And so I, um, you know, like everyone else, um, it's extremely appalling to be sitting here um, talking about this issue in 2015. And I think, um, you know, so what we tried to do um, at USET was get the entire USET leadership to um, sanction and promote a joint task force that would um, that would focus on on the Peter Francis case, and you know, with some um, hopefully uh, end results that would uh, that would you know you're never going to really put an issue like this to rest in terms of um, you know the damage that's been done to people, but I think you know given them some closure on this and, and uh, in the fact that somebody is legitimizing um, what actually happened to these people. So we had, you know, um, you know we would like a, a criminal and civil uh, rights inquiry into the, uh, into the killing of Peter and, and that whole incident. You know, and you, you would talk, I was listening to the show earlier, and I thought Colin did a great job of, of kind of um, – laying out all of the injustices around it, you know, from the lack of prosecution to the lack of effort through that um, prosecution to, you know, what is clearly um, evidenced in the case as well is a concerted effort to not only kind of uh, go about it in kind of a ho-hum way, but also um, really purposely trying to avoid um, crucial evidence in that case. So when you have... Um, all that's happened to the Passamaquoddy and the Penobscot and all the Wabanaki, you know, from forced hysterectomies on women to uh, no voting rights long after southern states um, had them to just tons of historical trauma. Um, you know, we felt like it was important that we try to put the weight of the 26 tribal um, governments that we have at USET and, um, and get Department of Justice and get these task force and the right people on them and start to have a real conversation about um, about what had happened, but also um, trying to get some real results to help that community and, and Indian people in general heal. So what I saw Saturday at the event, um, which I was privileged to be there, was, um, you know, a community still very much in pain over this issue five decades later. I mean, you can see it in people's faces not just the family, which is understandable there, but, you know, the entire community. Because what that really said was um, when you have, you know, crowds of people applauding non-convictions, when, you know, a lot of people died that day, right? And you have Indian people in general in Maine just demoralized as a group. And and so, um, but what I also saw, and Corey touched on it, was, um you know, a lot of people with some hope and a lot of people with um, uh, starting to heal and um, a new generation of, of tribal people like Corey and others that are um, elevated in certain arenas that have the resources and wherewithal to um, to really start to get a, a serious conversation going on this. So, so we're just really proud to um, do the very little that we are uh, to help and uh, hopefully these resolutions don't, are not just on paper. They, they start to have um, a real effect in getting people motivated to, um, to bring some closure to this. Yeah, and it's not um, the intent to have this uh, just be a resolution and no action. But I would like uh, uh, Chief uh, Bob Bryant, who chaired the uh, Justice Committee for USET, uh, to read that resolution and then uh, discuss something about 
the action that the resolution uh, speaks to. So, uh, Bob, if you could uh, read that resolution. Okay. Uh, this is a USEP resolution uh, requesting a federal tribal state inquiry into the circumstances surrounding the killing of Peter Francis and the establishment of a joint federal tribal state task force to examine the unresolved, excuse me, the unsolved and unprosecuted killings of Wabanaki people in the state of Maine. And it goes as follows. Whereas United South and Eastern Tribes Incorporated, you said, is an intertribal organization comprised of 26 federally recognized tribes, and whereas the actions taken by the USET Board of Directors officially represent the intentions of each member tribe, as the Board of Directors comprises delegates from the member tribe's leadership, and whereas the state of Maine exercised near-exclusive criminal jurisdiction over Indian reservations in Maine until 1975, and whereas the state of Maine continues to exercise criminal jurisdiction over all felonies on Indian reservations in Maine, and whereas there is a disturbing historical propensity in the state of Maine where Wabanaki people are targeted for violence because of their status as Native people, but no criminal convictions against the perpetrators of this violence are ever attained, and whereas Peter Francis, a Passamaquoddy elder and World War II veteran, was brutally killed in 1965 by five non-Indian men who traveled to Passamaquoddy community of Pleasant Point with a gold propositioning of Passamaquoddy women, and whereas a heinous assault was also perpetrated against Christy Altivator, another Passamaquoddy man who never fully recovered from his injuries, and whereas local law enforcement only investigated the incident at the request of the Passamaquoddy tribe and subsequent grand jury proceedings only resulted in manslaughter charges against one of the five men present when Peter Francis was murdered, killed, and no criminal charges were brought in the violent assault of Christy Altavita, and whereas a trial and the killing of Peter Francis resulted in a non-guilty verdict that was widely considered to have been the product of prosecutorial indiscretions and a widespread failing of the state of Maine's criminal justice system, and whereas in the late summer of 1967, a dozen Maine state law enforcement officers, state police, deputy sheriffs, and game woods descended on the Pleasant Point Reserve, breaking into tribal members' homes without warrants and beating tribal members for a perceived assault on a state trooper, and whereas a state court judge, Ian McGinnis, publicly stated that he was very disturbed about the actions of the state law enforcement officials and urged a forthright investigation of the police actions, whereas no action was taken against the law enforcement for the violations of tribal members' civil rights. Whereas, unfortunate stories such as this are all too common in Wabanaki communities, and whereas the failure of the state of Maine and the United States justice system to adequately protect the civil rights of Peter Francis and the Wabanaki people in the state of Maine has opened the door for numerous killings and brutal acts of violence for which no justice has ever been served. And whereas certain discrepancies in how these crimes against Wabanaki people have been investigated and prosecuted at a state and federal level fosters distrust, excuse me, distrust between Maine's tribal and community justice communities, whereas this distrust hinders the ability of tribal communities to heal on these historical traumas and can obstruct the ability of law enforcement to adequately protect those whom they owe a duty to protect and serve, and whereas public safety and trust in tribal communities demands that active efforts to be undertaken to repair the damaged relationship between law enforcement and tribal communities in Maine to promote justice for all, whereas in December 2010, the United States recognized the rights of the First Peoples through its support of the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People, whose provisions and principles support and promote the purpose of this resolution. Therefore, be it resolved, the United South and Eastern Tribes and Corp request a tribal, state, federal, criminal, and civil rights inquiry into the killing of Peter Francis and the manner in which the criminal proceedings related to his killings were undertaken, and it be it further resolved that the United South and Eastern Tribes requested a joint 
tribal state federal task force be formed to inquire into the unresolved and unprosecuted killings of Wabanaki people in the state of Maine and to make a report with recommendations to address past abuses and implement future policies that will foster fair and just relations between tribal communities and law enforcement. Okay, so the the action of that resolution is that you uh, you said is in the process of actually forming that task force. Uh, is that uh, correct, Bob? Yes, the executive board of you said you know has instructed the criminal uh, the tribal justice committee, which is a committee uh, within the you said organization, to sort of put this task force together. So we've. Uh, Communicated. We've been communicating with uh, federal partners and other uh, uh, civilian organizations to uh, try to form this uh, into a uh, true task force. And you have some very uh, pro professional uh, people that are, are interested in being on this task force. Uh, yeah, I know a follow-up to this was a letter sent to the uh, Attorney General of the United States requesting that uh, she appoint a uh, person from the federal level, and we're waiting to hear back from that. Uh, I've also was approached by folks from the Syracuse University uh, Cold Case uh, Investigation Unit, uh, professors of law. Two individuals have, have uh, expressed their desire to be a part of the task force, and also the U U.S. Uh, Human Rights Work Group uh, has asked to be a part of this also. So it's, it's exciting that we're having folks recognize, you know, the injustices and that are stepping up to want to, you know, make things, to make changes that are well overdue. Yeah. And, uh, and Corey, back to you. Um, what's your uh, feeling on the process of this, how this is going? Well, it's extremely encouraging. Uh, in talking with my father on Saturday night um, about his his feelings after the event, he recounted to, to my family and I just how long he carried the, the burden of his grandfather's murder by himself and about how he carried around a, a folder with press clippings for years, giving it to whoever would listen. And knowing that now we have the benefit of, of tremendous individuals and leaders like Police Chief Brian, Chief Francis, the Passamaquoddy community, and yourself, Donna, it, it, it means the world. Um, and, and I'm hopeful that these efforts will, will shine a light on these injustices. But more importantly, I'm, I'm hopeful for how they will bring change and uh, how the criminal justice system works for tribal communities in the future. Because at the end of the day, uh, as much as I would very, very, uh, as much as I would like to, to bring those those hunters to justice, I recognize the, the difficulties in that. And at the end of the day, I would, if this is going to be a true success, it will be about how we can use that lesson to avoid circumstances like that happening in the future. And I, I see... I see all of these different moving pieces gearing towards bringing about that result, and I'm 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 really hopeful for that. Yeah, um, and and uh, Chief Francis, uh, do you have any comments? Yeah, no, I, I think um, you know I think he hits it right on the head. You know, the goal and objective here is to um, make sure that you know we do everything we can to hold everyone involved accountable at some level, whether that's criminally or any other way, um, to, again, I mean, to me, the, the most important thing here is to um, make sure that that community, that Indian people in Maine and Indian people everywhere else, and I mean, it, you know, Don, I mean, we, 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 we do a lot of these shows on, um, on injustices to Indian people in, in a variety of areas, and uh, it comes in many forms, and I think this is a great um, opportunity for us to really shed light on on that happening in its most horrific form and that 
this is real in Maine. It, it, there's a history of of this um, not just physical violence, but political violence and, and um, you know bad policy and a whole host of things that um, that we deal with here. And I think that you know what we're trying to say is uh, these communities and our people matter. In that um, you know, in for five decades now, um, nobody outside of the family in these communities, within state government or anywhere else, has said differently. And that, uh, to me, is, is really appalling. So, um, to me, I, I think, you know, it's incumbent on state government through their attorney general's office, through a whole host of um, agencies federally to say, you know, this wasn't okay. And, um, and we don't support an environment that... Um, just chooses to be quiet about it while an entire people suffer. So, uh, Bob, on the task force uh, end of things, uh, now the task force will be formed, and uh, it's my understanding that uh, they will uh, uh, do interviews and do some investigations and uh, and write a, uh, a report. Uh, and uh, recommend some actions, uh, whether they be uh, for for civil rights or human rights or uh, in any in a different areas. I don't know, but uh, where do you foresee the uh, the uh, information uh, going? Well, I mean, uh, I would uh, my vision for it to be going is. One is uh, to the state uh, so that they can look at, you know, problems that uh, still exist within the the justice system here in Maine so that, you know, we can start some corrective action. You know, obviously the the federal level to to be absorbed. uh, But I also see this as to be used as a a tool uh, uh, for true community policing. This is a uh, prime example of, uh, you know, uh, you know, also to the uh, Human and Civil Rights Commissions, I mean, to take a look at this. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, this, this here is a, a, a true representation of, of why there's not true community policing, not only in, in Maine uh, when, it, when it comes to uh, but across the country, we're looking at problems that exist between, you know, citizens, communities, and law enforcement. And this is a shining example uh, of where that problem lies. You know, one of the uh, recent uh, studies or task force that were created was, was the uh, President's Task Force on 21st Century Community Policing uh, to try to fix those relationships and you know Donna and Corey it gets down to you know the first pillar that he uh, mentions in his final report is that it has to begin with truth and, and legitimacy and by looking around the room on uh, Saturday when I was at the event and, and listening to the pain that is so still prevalent you know that's that's where it uh, begins is that trust, and, and you're not going to have trust until folks look at, you know, what has occurred, uh, bringing that to the forefront, and changing, you know, those patterns uh, of injustices. Uh, so, you know, that's important to me, knowing that, you know, for me to truly get true community policing, you have to understand what has occurred in the past. And, you know, we were given that legacy by the state. Uh, we're talking about tribal law enforcement. We were given a legacy of that type of injustice and lack of actual service to the tribal citizens when they were perpetrated against. So, you know, now you know, we're working on a foundation of, of, of mistrust and, and lack of legitimacy. So, you know, that's important to me to get that fixed. And I'm going to do all that I can on my part to, to be a part of those changes. No, and I think that uh, the fact that the USET uh, organization has uh, actually uh, 
signed a resolution and created a task force to uh, that that they are backing to do an investigation. I think that's historic. Uh, I don't remember um, anything, at least in uh, in New England. I'm not going to speak for the rest of the country, but I don't remember anything that uh, uh, any resolutions or any task force investigations that were uh, put together by tribes or tribal organizations uh, to really investigate their own uh, things that were uh, abused, you know, their own abuses. What about you, Kirk? Have you heard anything about... Well, you know, I, I think it's an opportunity for you set to show leadership in this area. Um, in, um, you know, we talk a lot about truth and reconciliation processes and uh, healing historical trauma, uh, you know, bad adoption policy, all the things that have, have caused a lot of social issues in our communities um, today. But, you know, I think um, with this case and with this this incident, we have an opportunity to be a leader in the country on formally addressing these things, no matter when they happened. And because um, sadly, as we all know, um, you can go to most reservations in the country and find a Peter Francis story. And um, and I think uh, it's a real opportunity for us to um, stand up and say, you know, these things still play a role in our communities today. They still have an effect on people today. And um, and we have to have a conversation about how to put that behind us. Yeah. And uh, and Corey, do you have some comments? I do. I I think that what what is what you said is supporting, um, and what happened in Maine is is really a, a microcosm for things that we've seen around Indian country. And I'm really just piggybacking off the sentiments that that the chief and and the police chief have have set forth here, but. Um, it's exactly right that this has happened throughout Indian country, and it's been happening for for a long time. And I and in recognizing that, I see you set support of this task force as a model that can be replicated um, in places where where there are border towns, re, border towns next to reservations, where where racial animosity is a reality of life that people don't want to talk about. This task force should be a forum for bringing those issues to the forefront and a forum that, quite frankly, doesn't usually exist. The president's uh, report on, on violence in Native communities, while tremendous, um, it, it was so broad that it really only had the capacity to draw from little anecdotes here and there. But what you said is promoting is, is really uh, an effort to, to get into the weeds and to understand on a state and a tribal level what's going on, and then to bring in the overlay of the federal government to see how how existing federal legal principles can be applied to to facilitate uh, to, to facilitate justice. I think I think this is all really great. And I think this this uh, portends well for Indian country and for improving um, what has really been systematic injustice in our uh, to justice at, at this stage of it. But if this here if, if the Peter Francis death changes, makes changes in this uh, uh, broken system, then uh, I think uh, then we can look to that to say there, there was some type of a positive at the end of all of this. And I agree, and I, uh, I'm not really willing to uh, say that we're never going to bring these people to justice. Um, I think there's always that possibility. Uh, so I'm going to uh, close by saying a little statement here about uh, the murder of Peter Francis uh, has not been forgotten, nor have the injustices perpetrated on the community by an unfair and unresponsive legal and judicial system. The truth will come to light and justice will be served. Uh, thank you for, uh, for joining me today in the Wabanaki Windows. Uh, I'm your host, Anna Loring. I thank my guests, uh, uh, Michael Corey Hinton, uh, the great-grandson of uh, Peter Francis, uh, Kirk uh, Francis, who's the chief of the Penobscot Nation, <clears throat> and uh, Bob Bryant, the uh, Penobscot Nation's police chief and chair of the uh, USET uh, task force, and I uh, thank my engineer, uh, Amy Brown. 
Uh, join us again next month for another Webinecki Windows.